Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. An author who lives in Santa Cruz, she's written a, a previous book uh, that was called Stop That Girl, and her writing has appeared in various other publications. And her new book, actually came out last year, the paperback version is here in my hands, set in large part here in San Francisco, and it's a book that has fun with the notions, the conventions of the literary world, mm -hmm. as well as the story of an uh, unusual young man and an unusual young woman who meet somewhere in Pacific Heights in San Francisco, and she happens to be trapped in a bed, a fold-up bed on the front porch, and he rescues her. That's how they meet. McGregor is his name. Carolyn is hers. McGregor Tells the World is the name of the book. Please welcome Elizabeth McKenzie to West Coast Live. Thank you. Poor boy in, uh, in the Bay Area decides he's having a lucky day, and so he leaves his car a bit parked into a bus zone. I mean, he measures his luck by where he chooses to park in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That seems to be, you know, kind of a, I don't know, is it measuring luck or is it a kind of a daily gamble? It's a lucky day for him, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because he found a, a woman and a bed all at once, and yeah. And perhaps a secret to his past. Very much so. Because he shows up with empty envelopes with the return address of this particular house in Pacific Heights on it, uh, and is trying to figure out whatever was in them and what that freight meant. Yeah, um, he runs up against a lot of obstacles finding out there's a secret that no one wants him to know. Um, basically, he meets a woman who um, had a relationship with her. Now, you don't want to give everything away here, do you? I'm tired of beating around the bush. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I mean, I won't, not everything, but um, you know, she had a relationship with her father's best friend as a way to short-circuit um, the intensity of that relationship um, when she was a teenager. And there were serious consequences. So I won't, I won't talk about that. But also, uh, you, you have fun with the idea of... Uh, it's the story of, two, uh, of, a, of a writer, uh, a famous writer in San Francisco who was, uh, had written a, uh, a notorious book called Tangier uh, that inspired a lot of young people, they're always sort of young, sort of uh, sycophants hanging around. Um, yeah, he's one of these writers that, he's kind of an amalgam of sort of the egotistical writer figure, bloated with flattery and eager for more. And um, there are scenes in the book with the sycophants and toadies, and those were pretty fun to write. Um. <laughs> McGregor has a very curious way of thinking in the world, and, and you, you put his thoughts in italics, and sometimes you have him thinking an amazing sort of comment, and he has to decide whether or not he wants to be courageous enough to verbalize it. Yeah, he has a lot of, he has a rich inner life and a meager outer life, <laughs> he says in the book, yeah. That's a, uh, and, and the, the image where he, he shows up on this doorstep and he suddenly sees these girls shoving a woman out the door, or the woman is trapped in a folding bed and left there on the, on the porch. That's quite a wonderful sort of way to meet an image. 
Well, you know, that image has been with me for a long time. In seventh grade, um, I went with some friends on a vacation, and my friend and her brother stuffed me in a rollaway bed, rolled me out into the elevator, took me downstairs, rolled me out into the street, and ran away. And, let, um, and I, w I, was, I thought it was pretty funny, actually. And it struck me as I was lying there, and in the years later when the image kept coming back to me, that it was really an opportunity to start over. And, um, and what, what do you mean, start over? Well, if, if I had just, someone had come along and pushed me away and taken me off, and I would have started another life. Um, and I think it also feeds into a romantic ideal because when someone releases you sort of from yourself, or in this case from the bad, you know, you sort of hope that you're going to escape yourself. And so that's kind of, you know, where Carolyn was. The first thing that McGregor notices about her is her feet. Yeah, he feels it's pathetic because he wants to kiss them before he's even seen her face. <laughs> the, uh, and, and the, uh, how would you characterize the relationship between uh, McGregor and, and Carolyn, how they, how they tend to, um, the tension that develops. Oh, there's so much tension because they're driven by forces they can't see that they, that's what, it's really about what, where I started with this book was to write, a, to analyze a relationship that um, had ended badly and not a specific one, but just one that ended badly because of the forces that were behind the scenes that they didn't, you know, were, they were a lot of projections and so forth. And, um, and I, I think a lot of early relationships do get damaged that way. Um, but they, uh, there's a parallel between Carolyn and everything um, that she and Mac experienced and what Mac experienced with his mother. And he, uh, you know, it's so he's looking for something. He, it's a very, it's, it echoes with that. There's a early on. There's a there's a sense that fathers are overrated, and that maybe mothers are overrated too, because his father takes his life, leaves a note that says "Merry Christmas to all" and "To all a good night." And they find him later in the snow. The mother kind of disappears, and and poor McGregor doesn't know for a long time what her fate is. But he's sent to relatives in California, and I think the. The description you give of the sense of a loss of of, of mother, it's very very moving. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I mean, and how he had to cope with that. Yeah, um, yeah. It, he's um, he's an orphan. He he's he's a literature loving lost soul. He um, loves Dickens. Um, he loves reading about or other orphans. He. Um, is attracted to people who don't have fathers, such as his pupil, Filippo. Um, and I, I am too. <laughs> yeah. he's, uh, he, he has this job tutoring this young, young boy, even though his job is to dust books and shelve them, and he gets fired for helping this little kid. Yeah. <laughs> Someone, is, that, is that sort of a view of librarians? Well, actually, I love librarians, but I did work in a library once, and I did get fired. Um, not... I, I was reading, actually, <laughs> in the stacks. You were reading on the job yeah. in the library? Yeah. Shocked. <laughs> Shocking. I know. I, I'm supposed to be dusting. <laughs> so. Also, Boccaccio's Decameron and the idea of very kind of curious relationships between people in, in almost this kind of a, a grotesque way plays away. <laughs> it's convoluted, isn't it? I, I, I hope not too much so. No, no. I mean, not too much so, but I mean, it seems to be that's another kind of homage you have. Yes, very much so. What is it about the Decameron that, that appeals to you? 
Well, um, Carolyn starts telling him stories at the beginning. She tells him a story from the Decameron about um, a boy and girl who were so in love that the family resented it and chopped off his head, and she planted it in a pot of basil. And this kind of alarms Mac. (laughs) But he's still eager to hear every story she has to tell and asks, you know, do you have 100 stories for me? And those 100 days go very quickly. That's about the length of their time together this summer. Um, But... They go very quickly. Was that sort of a, a, a way that you chose to structure the book? Yes, very much so, yes. It was, um, you know, in structure, I kind of thought of Goodbye Columbus in terms of the time period. Um, I thought of The Great Gatsby in terms of the present alternating with the past. And, and, and how do you want Mac to end up by the end? What is, your, what is your hope for him as a character? He, you know, I... I th- I'm very optimistic for him at the end of the book. He's got his own apartment. He's not living with his cousin anymore. Um, he, you know, he might be interested in an older woman who really likes him genuinely, who was his fourth grade teacher. <laughs> so, I mean, there's problems there, but he's, he's working through them, yeah. He meets his fourth grade teacher at a party and is sort of unsure how to react to her because by now he's grown and he's aware of her in a different context. <laughs> yeah, it's awkward at first, but, you know. Well, I suppose that that's what novelists are supposed to write about, are awkward things. Oh, yeah, me especially. <laughs> I'm very drawn to that. I'm, I'm drawn to the bewildered character. Um, there's that Rumi saying, sell cleverness and buy bewilderment. And I'm, I'm very rich in bewilderment, and so are the characters I'm drawn to. So is writing a way of kind of navigating the bewildering world? Yes, <laughs> yes. You know, Charles Fort was the kind of guy who sort of found the world bewildering and puzzling and frogs falling from the sky. I mean, yeah, I'm like him. I mean, I keep um, notes and words on little pieces of paper. and um, um, I, We have shoes falling from the sky in the book, so... <laughs> That was kind of a ceremonial toss of shoes into the world. Now, how does this relate then to Stop That Girl, the series of stories that became a, a kind of a, a novel-like account? Some of the preoccupations are similar. They'll always come through, um, sort of a, um, a confusion about, you know, one's parents and... Um, um, but they're very different, actually. This is... This, ca- this book came to me like almost a dream. Um, and I remember writing down all these notes just over one day, and it was sort of the whole idea. Stop That Girl is episodic and um, takes the main character. It's pretty auto- It's actually kind of like autobiographical fiction and could have been a memoir maybe. Um, so. And uh, how, how would you view yourself uh, as a role model in the world? <laughs> I, oh gosh, I wouldn't. I, I mean, I've, I've never, you know, I've, I'm very, it, I, it was very difficult for me to <laughs> succeed professionally. I, I, you know, lived marginally in San, Santa Cruz for a long time, which is a great place to do that. Um, <laughs> you fit in there just fine. And I kept a low overhead and, and it worked out. Um, I never prepared myself to do anything else. So I don't know if I see myself as a role model, really. I, so is it, is it uh, do you enjoy these sort of excursions into the world to talk about your book, or do you cringe, like, for 48 <laughs> hours in advance? Oh, God. I, I don't want to admit how much cringing I was doing, because I'm actually having a really good time. <laughs> oh, good. Good. Uh, 
the uh, the story is uh, uh, I was I was I was struck by your sort of the, the the distance that you put in San Francisco, as I say, between the Mission and the Pacific Heights, sort of very emblematic of class differences. I mean, this is also kind of a book about presumed class differences too. Yes, it is, um, and I want you know. Mac was kind of the go-between between Carolyn and introducing her to other, you know, he takes her to Union City and they have their first sort of, one of their first big romantic moments in a field of gladiolus, um, which are grown in, that's the gladiolus capital of USA. Now, for those of us, uh, for, for people who live outside uh, the Bay Area, and even though for us in, in the Bay Area, describe Union City if we haven't been there. Well, um, the last time I was there, I saw a lot of, you know, warehouses and um there are, I think there are still are some agricultural fields there. Um, so they were growing bulbs, and she was very upset about it because she saw all these beautiful flowers that would no would not be seen because they were blooming already. And um, you know, it kind of she she burst into tears, and Mac didn't understand it, but I think it's she was reflecting on herself really. So. And what about his introduction to the world of moneyed people? He's, he, he makes fun of her from day one. You know, he looks at her window in Pacific Heights, and he can see the bridge, and he says, shouldn't you be able to see at least one factory? And <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. And because he's, he has a sense of, uh, of, in a way, uh, sort of the, the inequalities of the world, uh, having had many forced upon him. Yes, he does. And he, you know, the whole thing you've been talking about, there's so many resonances in today's show with the book. Um, in fact, I'd like to have Calaveras do the soundtrack for the movie. Every <laughs> song they sang just fit perfectly with the book. Um, and also the whole stuff about recycling and waste. I mean, Mac is, you know, into that himself. And, um, he, you know, he takes the old bed and he wants to turn it into art. Or, you know, people are always turning straight objects into art in the book. And, um, and in a way, the book is also about turning stories into life and uh, and life into stories. Yeah, yeah. You okay? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do I seem <laughs> ill at ease? <laughs> no. Good. No. No, it's. Uh, no, I just. Uh, so, do you still consider yourself as a as a writer, kind of part of the marginalized world of of society? Um, well, I'm teaching now at UC Santa Cruz, which I I can't believe, um, but it, there I am, and I'm. So yeah, I guess I'm getting more into the mainstream by the day. <laughs> but so, and, and you, so is our pink umbrella man. He um, he's becoming more famous by the day. It's, do you know about him? Explain. He I don't know where he lives, but he shows up every day on the mall and he walks about one inch a minute and he's painted pink. He has a painted smile and he has little poodles hanging off of him and he has a pink parasol and. He's becoming famous. I mean, Karen Joy Fowler just wrote about him in her new book, and you know. And this is this is uh, at the Santa Cruz uh, Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk. Uh, no, at the Pacific Garden Mall. The Pacific Garden Mall, which is in Santa Cruz. Yeah, yeah. And uh, pink, <laughs> pink. You know, I I saw. Uh, it reminds me of something. I, yesterday, I was in the Museum of Modern Art in the lobby. You know, which is there are a couple of big. Multicolored panels in the on the upper sides, but it's essentially black, black marble. And the woman who was sitting there taking tickets for people to go up the stairs and it just kind of popped right out. She had a pink wig on, pink stockings, and a bright blue skirt, and a pink blouse. And it just, Maybe I thought it, I thought it was a sculpture. Maybe it was his mother, yeah, or sister, I don't yeah, know, yeah. daughter, yeah. <laughs> mother, daughter. I don't know. You know. Yeah. So, uh, 
Is that is that somebody that you would want to sort of incorporate in your book? N- no, no, it's been done. It's been done. It's been done. So, when what is the subject that you uh, that you teach at UC Santa Cruz? Uh, this last class was called the Art of Comedy, um, Performance, and Literature, and it was basically modeled on Josh Kornbluth. Do you, <laughs> you've had him on the show. Oh, yeah, we know Josh. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, I wanted the students to write monologues, and he actually came to our class and spoke to them. So it was great. Yeah. And and are you a monologist yourself? Um, secretly, but yeah. Have you performed? Um, just readings at this point, not, yeah. So uh, how is a novel different than from a monologue? Oh, um, well, it would take a lot of voices, like word for word, to perform um, a whole novel. Um, so the monologue is really one person telling their story. How would McGregor's voice go? Oh, I think of, I, he's... Um, John Cusack, basically, you know, in Say Anything. That's kind of who I see him as, yeah. And what about Carolyn? Oh, someone, oh, I don't know. She's Kate Winslet when she was crazy in that movie about the two girls who were, you know, remember that one in New Zealand? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, And there was a murder or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh. <laughs> so movies, in a way, kind of perform uh, the function of dreams for you, it seems like. Yeah, and and vice versa. I I have a journal full of dreams that are like movies to me. So. And what is it that where these college kids want to be monologists? Oh, <laughs> well, there are a lot of you know. It's funny they there are a lot of very funny people at UC Santa Cruz, <laughs> and they just wanted to be in this class and to show that off. And we did a performance at the end, and it was really good. Yeah. And do people go particularly deep then in these stories? Well, that's what Josh told us to do. He said, you know, go to the place of your most excruciating embarrassment. And um, that was great advice. And some of them never thought of it that way before. And they wrote some really good stuff because of that. And is your place of most excruciating embarrassment? <laughs> she, <laughs> she just looks startled like the bright lights went in her eyes. I'm not going to ask you to, to reveal that. But, I mean, is that a source... You know, like the wellspring for some of your writing? Yeah, I mean, all the episodes in Stop That Girl were... I didn't include every embarrassing thing that happened to me, but those were motivations for a lot of the stories. I mean, And then like the turkey vulture, is this like a golden cleansing? I mean, is it a catharsis for you? <laughs> you know, there's a turkey in McGregor. I don't know if you remember, but it's being packed by all the other birds. until And anyway, um, yeah, I guess it is, yeah. The book is called... McGregor Tells the World, and Elizabeth McKenzie is the teller behind the telling of the world, and it's uh, now out in paperback, published by Random House. Thanks very much for being here on Les Coast. Elizabeth McKenzie. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.